you've already heard speakers talking about some of the, the mixed nature of evangelical Christian missions today. There's really faithful work, and there's work that's probably unfaithful, and there's work that's just maybe unhelpful. And I want to talk to you this afternoon about how you as an individual, as a member of a local church, maybe as a church leader, how you can both in your own efforts and in your churches think about who you should support, how you should support them, what things you should prepare people for. I think it's important to talk about that because missions has always been problematic and controversial and mixed. I don't know if you may be feeling even slightly discouraged from hearing people talk about the, some of the unfaithful things that are going on in missions, but you know, it, it's understandable if maybe you feel a little discouraged, but you're in good company. Missions has always been mixed and problematic and controversial. And if you don't believe me, just ask the Apostle Paul. In his own lifetime, the Apostle Paul was criticized by others for being too broad and inclusive in Acts chapter 21, for being unimpressive in the results he was producing in 1 Corinthians chapter, um, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, for being not sufficiently sensitive to the context in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, for being weak, for being foolish, and for being too Bible dependent later on in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. But I think those are unfair critiques. But not all the critiques are unfair because God himself, through his apostles, had critiques in the first century of things that were going on under the name of Christian missions. So uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, God, through the apostle Paul, calls some mission work disgraceful and underhanded. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, God calls some mission work divisive. In John's second epistle, God calls some mission work deceptive and anti-Christian, all right? So missions has always been problematic and mixed. And I think I understand, at least from a human level, why that may be the case. Because along with faithful men and women who are willing to lay down their lives for the sake of the gospel, missions has also always attracted hucksters and pragmatic charlatans and heretics. Because if you think about it, where better to try to sell unbiblical ideas than in a new place where sound biblical doctrine is unknown and there aren't any faithful shepherds to pr protect the sheep, all right? It's not surprising that missions has always been a mixed bag. It always has been, it is today. So the question we need to ask then is just like people in the first century, how do we discern the fake from the faithful? How do we do that for the people that we would send out in missions, for the people that we'd partner with, and for other mission agencies that we might use? How do we, how do, we do that? Well, to do that this afternoon, I want us to look at the Apostle Paul's defense of his own ministry. Because as I said, Paul's ministry wasn't uncontroversial. People who I think may have even been our brothers and sisters in Christ didn't appreciate Paul's ministry. It was unimpressive. It seemed foolish. It seemed weak. And they criticized his mission's ministry. And Paul defended his ministry, not, I think, because he was a defensive guy. 
but because, precisely because, his effort was simply to proclaim the basic, simple biblical gospel. And he knew if someone's criticizing his ministry, implicitly, they're criticizing the sufficiency of the gospel. So for the sake of the gospel, Paul defends his ministry, and he does that maybe most clearly in the letter of 2 Corinthians. So if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you, turn to 2 Corinthians. We're going to start at the beginning of chapter 4 in verse 1. We're going to read through verse 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 to 10. And in that, I think we'll begin to see some of what Paul says is what we should be looking for in Christian ministry. All right. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 10. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifest in our bodies. So how do you prepare people to be sent out on missions? How do you prepare your church to partner with other people in missions? Well, I think this passage has a lot to say to us. I want to give two quick caveats in case some of you are as neurotic as I am about listening to talks. So here are two caveats real quick. One, I am a pastor of a local church, and I preach. And when I preach, I tend to preach expositionally, where I take a passage of Scripture, and I want the, the, the main point of my sermon to be the main point of that passage of Scripture. That's not what I'm doing this afternoon, all right? I'm, gonna, I'm not going to be preaching an expositional sermon on 2 Corinthians. I'm going to be drawing out some of the implications, which I think are there, but they may be second, third order implications. So if you're if you're very careful about expositional preaching, good for you. Uh, just cut me some slack and realizing we're meditating on the topic of missions while looking at this passage. And hopefully that will help you to relax. Second, I understand I'm going to give you some points and my points overlap. So if we get to point number three and you go, wait, that sounds a lot like point number one and point number two. What's going on here? Well, I'm wanting to kind of like if you take up, you ever taken up like a well, I, nobody would do a diamond this big, but some cut piece of glass that has lots of facets to it. And you kind of turn it around and you look at this, and then you look at this, 
you need to look at this facet, can you turn it just a little bit to look at it this way? That's what I want us to do with the topic of missions from this passage. And I think you'll find it, I hope, edifying and helpful, even if it seems like some of the questions are asking the same thing, but just in a little different way, all right? Those are my two questions to hopefully let 10% of you just relax and listen to the talk, all right? Well, I want to look at this passage of Scripture and see what does it say to us about the topic of missions. And I want to draw out seven questions and seven warnings and seven encouragements. And it won't take that long. And they're all clumped together, all right? Seven questions, seven warnings, and seven encouragements from this passage in 2 Corinthians. And let's jump right into them. The first question is this. When you're talking to someone about missions, someone that your church might send, or someone that you might partner with, or a missions agency, or even a resource that you're going to do, you should ask these seven questions of that person, or partnership, or resource. And the first question is this. It's foundational. Is there motivation, a God-centered confidence, or a man-centered fear? You know, the Apostle Paul, in defending his ministry, he starts out by looking to God, the God of mercy, as the fuel for his passion for missions. He says that right there in verse 1. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. God's motivation, I'm sorry, Paul's motivation was knowing that he was laboring in God's mission. And because of that, he didn't lose heart. So in light of that, let me give you the warning. The first warning Beware, be very careful of using guilt and oppressive tales of sort of lostness as a way to motivate people for missions. Now, I'm very much aware that Jesus said that we should pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers because you know, the harvest is plentiful and the laborers are few. But that doesn't mean that we should try to use guilt to convince people that they should be one of those laborers. It doesn't mean that we should obsess over the lostness of the world. Now, that, that may sound strange in talking about missions, but I think too much of a focus on the human need in missions and too little a focus on the God who's glorified through the mission actually can lead us astray. I was talking to, to Brooks at lunch about some friends that I have in India that I think want to be faithful in what they're doing, but they are so oppressed by the population of India and what they often refer to as the brutal facts, the, the number of people that are dying and going to hell, that I think their faithfulness in the gospel is actually challenged because they've decided that if they don't come up with some way to do missions that produces results faster than the rate of population growth in India, somehow Jesus' mission is failing. I just don't think that's true. I don't think Jesus promises a particular rate of growth. I think we can beat ourselves up with the lostness in the world. I think instead the encouragement I would give you is this. Embolden your people with a confidence in the faithfulness of God. That is generally how Jesus encouraged his disciples about the mission that he had for them. So in John chapter 10, verse 16, Jesus says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. 
So there will be one flock and one shepherd. Or in John chapter 6, Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing, nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up at the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. We could go on and on, but Jesus, and after him the apostles, they encourage people in missions, not with guilt, but with a confidence that it's God's mission and that he's going to be glorified and they can be a part of it. Well, that's my first question. Question number two, when you're evaluating people or partners or missions agencies, ask, do they seem to rely on cunning and clever methods or on gospel clarity? The Apostle Paul, when he's defending his own ministry, he says this, we have renounced disgraceful underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. The Apostle Paul understood that, that he should preach the gospel clearly. It wasn't his job to sort of market that message. So a warning for you, the first warning under this, beware, be very careful of methods for missions that try to obscure the offense of the gospel in the name of effective evangelism. I can give you examples that that people have done. People have talked about insider movements where they want to have Muslims continue to call themselves Muslims and keep praying in the mosque because it frankly just makes it so much easier to kind of say you've also become a Christian. Well, you know, of all the sort of strange things that people teach, I honestly find that one one of the strangest because I think the book of Hebrews was written specifically for the purpose that nobody would ever say anything like that. God says in the book of Hebrews, you can't sort of hide inside Judaism to avoid persecution. And, you know, Judaism, it's an insufficient faith after the coming of Christ and the realization of the Messiah. The writer of the Hebrews is really clear on that. But it's not made up. It's not false. It's not fake. It's true so far as it goes. It's just not sufficient, right? We're Christians here, so we all agree with that, right? It's not sufficient but it is true. Well, if you can't do that, you most certainly cannot hide inside a false religion like Islam. So there's all sorts of things that people have done like that in the name of effective evangelism. But you know, here's the encouragement. Instead, if you want to prepare your people and if you want to evaluate partnerships, Don't rely on their clever methods, but ask the questions, what do they believe about the authority, the sufficiency, and the self-authenticating nature of Scripture? Look for that. Encourage your people with that. And partner with groups that seem to have a confidence in the authority, the sufficiency, and the self-authenticating nature of Scripture. Now, two of those are probably real familiar to you. People talk a lot about, these days, happily, about inerrancy, infallibility, authority, and some about sufficiency. You know, the, the, God, the Bible is without error. The, God, the Bible 
always tells us what's true. The Bible has a right to tell us all about salvation and doctrine. The Bible's sufficient to tell us everything we need to know for life and godliness. But there's another doctrine that Christians 100 years ago would have just naturally included, and that's the self-authenticating nature of the Bible. That the Bible doesn't need help, in a sense. Calvin, when he wrote about the doctrine of Scripture, he included this. He said that we know that Scripture, carrying its own evidence along with it, deigns not to submit to proofs and arguments, but owes the full conviction with which we ought to receive it to the testimony of the Spirit. Later on, the Second London Confession says this about the self-authenticating nature of Scripture. It says, We may be moved and induced by the testimony of the Church of God to an eye and reverent esteem of the Holy Scriptures and the heavenliness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrines, and the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God, the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation and many other incomparable excellencies and entire perfections thereof are all arguments whereby it doth abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God. Yet notwithstanding, our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. Now, I stress that because I deal with a lot of missionaries and mission agencies that I think have lost confidence in the self-authenticating nature of the Bible. I've even read books by people that say that it's foolish and ineffective to preach the gospel to Muslims from the Bible because they don't believe the Bible. So why would you use that as a source to try to defend the gospel? Instead, you should maybe grab verses from the Quran out of context and use that to try to explain the gospel to them. Well, someone that says that I trust means well, but they have lost sight of the fact that the Bible is self-authenticating. And that's a good thing, even if right now you think, this is kind of weird, why is this guy camping on this? Just stick it in the back of your mind. And when you begin to look at missionary methods, just ask the question, does this method seem to presume that the Bible in and of itself is capable of convincing people of the truth of Scripture? Or is it assuming that I need to do something really clever and new in order to convince people of that? Because the, the Bible is self-authenticating. Western Christians that are really wrapped up in rationalism, we don't always kind of like that idea. It sounds kind of irrational. But one of the great things about spending time with people who have been converted from backgrounds and religious faiths that have no exposure to the Bible is you'll just see this over and over and over again. I see this especially in work with Muslims. So I, I live here in the United States, but I actually spend a lot of time in Muslim countries. I've gotten to know a lot of Muslims who have become Christians over the years. And one of the most fascinating things about it is I could almost graph out their lives kind of like an hourglass. It starts out really broad and different. You know, maybe they grew up and met someone who's a Christian. Maybe, you know, they didn't know anybody that's a Christian. But somehow the hourglass will always work its way down to, and I got a copy of the Bible, and I started reading it. And then the hourglass will spread back out again, and they'll have different experiences. But I've found that 
almost every Muslim that I know, he may, he may tell stories about all sorts of other stuff, but one of the critical things in him being converted was just getting a hold of a Bible and starting to read it. One of my, one of my favorite stories is a guy I know from Diyarbakir in southeast Turkey who grew up as a Muslim. Uh, he was reading the Quran, and I assume there are no Muslims here, but if you are a Muslim and you're listening, I don't mean any disrespect for what I'm going to say. This is just, this is what this one Muslim guy's opinion was. So he was reading the Bible, I'm sorry, he was reading the Quran, and he goes to his imam, and he tells his imam, this doesn't make any sense. This is all nonsense. That was his word. And the imam says, well, you're reading the Quran in Turkish, but if you'd read the Quran in Arabic, you would understand that this really is the eternal language of God that exists with Allah in heaven, and you'd see that it's true. So this guy actually goes to Damascus, learns Arabic, starts reading the Quran in Arabic. He comes back to his, Mus his imam in Diyarbakir and says, it says the same nonsense in Arabic that it does in Turkish. And he decided to become an atheist. Well, he met a, a friend of mine, Mike, a few years later, and Mike gave him a copy of the Bible. And the guy went off. And Mike, who ran a kind of a bookstore, office supply store, said the guy comes back into his office very agitated and lays the Bible down on his counter and then hits the counter and says, now that is what a message from God would sound like. Um, nobody had given him an apologetic seminar. He had just read the Bible and the spirit bearing witness by and with the word of God convinced this guy that this was really the word of God. And eventually he became a Christian, his wife became a Christian. And I know lots of stories like that. Again, I know I've spent a lot of time on that, but as you look at missions, you can ask all kinds of questions, but ask the question, what does this person or method or agency seem to be saying about the word of God? Now, to, to be very explicit, I'm not saying that, well, Christian missions should just, we should just airdrop Bibles from airplanes over countries. Like, you know, the, there's other factors that are at work too. God uses our testimony, as Paul said, pouring out our very life for people, people explaining the scriptures like Philip did to the Ethiopian eunuch. So it's not, it's not that that's all there is, but that does need to be the center. And when someone begins to lose confidence in that, I think all sorts of mischief results. That's the self-authenticating nature of Scripture, a good thing for you to, to spend some time studying on. We'll move more quickly now. Number three, question number three, is this person or agency or mission organization, is their understanding of biblical truth objective and universal or experiential and contextual? Paul seemed to have a concern for that. That's why he says, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Paul thought that one truth was sufficient for every conversation. So beware, have a red flag when people talk too much about contextualization, if they overemphasize it, and particularly with regard to the Bible. And you know, the way you smell that out is often not by interrogating people about contextualization, but just if you hear them start saying things like, yeah, you just can't understand ministry in my context, or yeah, that, that just would never work here. Well, you may not understand things, but I think a lot of folks in missions have bought into the idea that unless 
unless you've actually sort of lived their life as sort of a parallel universe double, then you can't really have anything to say to them because the context is so important. Context does matter. You know, I'm preaching to you guys in English because I assume that you speak English and not Spanish. So some of you may speak Spanish. My Spanish is really bad. But I'm doing that. That's an exercise in contextualization. So I'm all, I'm all for that. Like, know, know your audience. But don't be like, I've sometimes caricatured some missionaries that you begin to try to talk to them about something from the Bible and they'll go, well, yeah, but have you, have you ever really worked with Muslims? And, and maybe I'd go, well, yeah, yeah, I've actually worked with Muslims quite a bit. Well, they'll go, but yeah, but have you ever worked with Central Asian Muslims? It's like, well, yeah, I've worked with Central Asian Muslims. I, I did some work in Uzbekistan for some time. And you're like, well, yeah, but have you ever worked with post-Soviet Central Asian Muslims? I'm like, well, yeah, Uzbekistan was part of the Soviet Union. It's like, oh, well, well have, you, have you ever worked with left-handed post-Soviet Central Asian Muslims? I'm like, well, no, I haven't. Like, well, see, you, you can't possibly understand, and there's nothing I can learn from you. Like, don't, you all laugh, and I meant that to be funny, but I've actually had a lot of conversations that felt like that. Like, that's not a good view of contextualization. The Bible, here's your, encur here's your encouragement, teach that the Bible and the church and the gospel are true and clear everywhere, in every language group, in every place, to every person. You know, we, we do need to know things about the context, but more than that, we need to know basic biblical truths that are transferable everywhere. You know, I, I honestly don't know if it's true, but I've often heard the illustration that the Treasury Department, when they want to train Treasury agents to spot counterfeits, they don't show them a thousand different ways to counterfeit a dollar bill. They just make them memorize, like, how many eyelashes does George Washington have on a dollar bill? Like, how, how many stars are there? Where is his position? And if they learn the real thing with just unbelievable detail, they can spot a counterfeit just like that. Well, that's the way we should be thinking about the church, the gospel, Christian missions. You don't have to worry in one sense about knowing every sort of problem or everything that could be wrong. Just train yourselves, train your people, work with organizations that are very clear on basic biblical doctrines. And then once you know what the non-negotiable sort of package of Christianity is, then you can sort through the things that are cultural and contextual. But start with, start with the church, the gospel, and biblical authority. Number four, fourth question. Is there emphasis on immediate visible results or persevering faithfulness? Did you notice when Paul defended his ministry to the Corinthians, he didn't spout statistics. He didn't talk about all the results he'd seen. He seemed to think that his ministry would be validated by something very different than all of that, by faithful perseverance. Now, you can persevere and not be faithful. You know, that's just kind of a waste of everybody's effort. But if you're faithful... Paul seemed to assume that perseverance was the mark of a true gospel ministry. He says that starting in verse 8, where he gives this strange list where he says, not, hey, let me tell you all the things we have accomplished. But instead, he says, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, 
persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. So friends, the warning, beware of an emphasis on immediate visible results. Often, as I think you've already been warned by an earlier speaker, often that will come with the word rapid. I've just made it a good policy. I just have an automatic red flag thing that goes up anytime anybody in mission says the word rapid. You know, rapid discipleship, rapid church planting, rapid anything. So they may be perfectly faithful people, but I at least make a mental note to say, hmm, I'm going to ask a question because if this person is absolutizing rapid, well, that means they're relativizing everything else. Once you decide that what you're doing in missions, faithfulness and all this other stuff, you know, to the side, once you decide it has to happen fast, then anything that would slow things down has to be chunked overboard. Carefully trained elders takes too long. You know, you know, having people that can rightly divide the word of truth, oh, they can barely even read. Better toss that over. You know, we're, we're not against things happening quickly. If God decides for things to happen quickly, that's great. But be very careful of demanding both immediate and visible results. Things don't always work that way. Ministry takes a lot of time. Speed can be, can be encouraging, but also addictive. Instead, let me give you an encouragement. Encouragement, here it is. Ask probing and awkward questions, and then celebrate faithfulness. I think a lot of Christians struggle with this particular issue about immediate visible results because they feel asking any questions about this is cynical and unfaithful and just like you're against evangelism. But if somebody t comes to you and they say, you know, hey, we've, we've planted a thousand churches in the last 15 minutes. You know, it's not bad to say, huh, that seems really fast. Let, tell me about those churches. Like, who's in them? Uh, like, what do they believe? Who leads them? Where are they? You know, that's not faithless. Enthusiasm is not the same thing as faithfulness, all right? Numbers aren't always really fruit. I, I had the sad involvement once in, in working with a, a guy that I knew who was a leader for Wycliffe Bible Translators. He, he came to me, he was in Bangladesh, and he came to me and said, I'm hearing all these reports about all these churches in Bangladesh. He's like, my job is to get churches involved in helping us with Bible translation. And I can't find any of them. You know, it's getting reported all over in the West. So I actually flew to Dhaka, Bangladesh, spent a week with this guy. We drove around to the places where people were reporting, you know, hundreds of churches. And uh, I don't think we found a single one. Now, I don't take delight in saying that, like being like, you know, professional debunker but just be wise and careful about that because one immediate may not always happen and two fruit may not always be visible uh, especially not in your lifetime 
I love, there's, a, there's an old Anglican preacher named Charles Bridges who wrote a good book called The Christian Ministry. And one of my favorite quotes in his book that's, it's a hard quote, but it's one that every faithful Christian as a pastor or a missionary needs to like take on board. And he says this, he says, sometimes the seed may lie, may lie under the clods until we do and then spring up. And he says later, we are exceedingly bad judges of the fruit of our own ministry. Uh, I've seen that so many times in the works of missionaries. I read about it all the time in missions. I have a friend who loves to tell the story of a guy named Luke Short, who was an immigrant to the U.S. back in the 1700s. And this guy, he writes about it before he was baptized. This guy is sitting in his field watching some rocks being moved in his field uh, in the 1700s, and he's in his 90s. He's like 90 years old, I think. And he's watching these rocks being moved, and something about it reminds him of a sermon that he heard, I think, 60 years earlier when he was living in England. And he's sitting, sitting there on his field watching people move rocks. He starts thinking about this sermon that a pastor had preached to him, and he's converted. He, he believes the gospel. He recognizes that he's a sinner, that he needs a savior, that the savior is the Jesus that he'd heard about in this sermon decades and decades earlier, and he believes. Now, the pastor who preached that sermon, I'm sure he did not include Luke Short on a list of his converts. He was dead long before Luke Short ever believed that sermon that he'd heard, I think even as a teenager, maybe. So, we are not good judges of the fruit of our ministry. We need to remember that, and we need to encourage our missionaries in that because sometimes fruit isn't immediate, and sometimes it's never visible in our lifetime. Well, number five, is their confidence resting on humanly devised methods or in the power of God? Now, here's one of those that sounds very much like the questions I've already asked, but it's got a different spin. Look, Paul, in defending his ministry, didn't boast about the incredible value of his contribution. Instead, he did just the opposite. He compared his contribution to the gospel to, like, you know, today's version of a disposable cup from Starbucks. He says, it's like cheap disposable pottery. He says that in verse 7, if you look down there. But we have this treasure, the gospel and the gospel ministry, in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Paul, when he's defending his ministry to the Corinthians, he doesn't talk about his, his new sort of whiz-bang missions methodologies. He boasts in the power of God. So here's my warning. Beware of supposed golden key methodologies they come around with an embarrassing degree of regularity. I was telling somebody else, to me, it, it's gotten to the point in my life where I feel it's like the people who predict Jesus' return, and they say, you know, Jesus is gonna return on October 1978, and then he doesn't. And you'd think like they'd kind of be done, but then they pop back up and they say, well, oh, Jesus is gonna return in 1982. Well, well about, how about 1995? And and there are some people that just keep following them. Well, yeah, 
I've seen the same thing in missions. I've seen people say, this is the new method that's gonna break open the nations for Christ. But then it doesn't. But then they just pop right back up and say, well, this is the new method that's gonna break open the nations for Christ. Well, there's not a secret golden method except for one thing. It's the Bible. Like declaring the gospel from the Bible. Like that's, that's the key there's not ever going to be another one till Jesus gets back because, you know, God is jealous for his own glory. Like, he kind of he told us he works this way in the Bible, that he sets it up so that we don't get to say it's our whiz-bang methodologies that brought the fruit. Like, he wants to make sure that it's done in such a way that he gets all the glory. And if the key is his word and his gospel being proclaimed, well, then he gets all the glory. There's not going to be any other key. So, so you're, you'll often hear about materials. Now, I don't think methods are actually bad. Like there's some methods that are good, many are bad, but we just have to realize none of them are the golden key. All right? And they go by a lot of names. You know, some, some of them are perfectly fine. Some I don't care for as much, like uh, the camel method or four fields, or as I said, anything that contains the word rapid, um, church planting movements. A lot of these sorts of things rely not on the Bible, but frankly on reverse engineering. Like one example, and I'm happy to make this because he, he argues it in this book, David Garrison, in his book on church planting movements, he, though I disagree with his methodology, with, with admirable candor and integrity, he, he says in his book that he didn't get his ideas from the Bible. He got them from reverse engineering where he saw a whole bunch of stuff happening in church planting somewhere else. And he just said, if I can basically, as best I understand him, if I can figure out what's the stuff they did that made this good stuff happen, we'll just distill out those elements. And then if we do that same thing somewhere else, you know, God's not obligated, but we're pretty sure he will produce the same results over here. Well, no, God isn't obligated. In fact, God doesn't like to work the same way twice. Do you know why? So that it's clear that it's not our cleverness, but it's his power at work so that he gets all the glory. That's why he likes to do new things in different ways. Our job is to just keep being faithful and then he'll bring fruit when he pleases as he pleases and the way he pleases in a way that'll give him the glory. So the encouragement in that, well, support ministry that employs simple biblical means of grace. I think a lot of Christians, when it comes to missions, they're attracted to the, the new, the flashy, that something that promises new results, and I understand that. But I would just encourage you, instead, Look for what seems like seemingly boring, plain vanilla, faithful missions where people are preaching the gospel, they're relying on evangelism and discipling and planting churches. Uh, I don't usually recommend stuff that I haven't asked people if it's okay to recommend before, but I don't know, how many of y'all have watched the Dispatches from the Front videos? Have y'all watched these? You watch these? Okay. Hopefully you like some of these, but 
that Tim Kazee, the guy who does those, is a bit of a friend of mine, and uh, he, in one of the videos that they do, they're, they're basically like missionary travelogues where they just look at gospel work in different places, but I really like the one on Eastern Europe. There's a guy who's a church planter there, and they talk about how peop- this church planter was fairly, you know, in a humanly visible sense, fruitful. He planted a lot of churches, and people would come and ask him what his methodology was, and he would just kind of look at them strangely, and he would say, well, like, I love people, and I tell them the gospel, and then I gather the believers into churches, and then I do that over again. He's like, that's my method. Well, I think you should look for missionaries and mission work that's like that. They just love people, they tell them the gospel, they gather the believers into biblical churches, and they just keep doing that. That, That's the simplicity of missions. It's not easy, but it's not complicated. Question number six. Do their missionary reports and their expectations square with a biblical description of fallen human nature? Paul, again, he understood that that even faithful ministry didn't guarantee immediate results, all right? Paul, I think, is assuming that his ministry is faithful. He's preaching the gospel, but he understands many of the people he preaches to don't believe. So he says later on, he says, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now again, this this may sound like I'm saying just lower your expectations. I don't, that's not what I mean to say. I think our expectations can be as high as the promises of God. But they need to be rooted in what God's actually promised. And he hasn't promised that any ministry will produce immediate results or visible results, or maybe not even results in our lifetime. So, so my warning to you under this is, if something seems too good to be true, it probably is. I sometimes feel like evangelical Christians need a remedial course in discernment, all right? Discernment is not cynicism. Wisdom is not a vice. It's not faithlessness. I kind of said this already, but, you know, if it's not wrong to ask questions, it's not wrong to wonder, do these numbers really make sense? Or are the expectations these folks are saying that their ministry is going to produce, do those expectations seem reasonable based on what, what we read in God's Word? I, I love a book I read once where a guy talks about interviewing a, a missionary team in, in North Africa, made of well-meaning young Christians. But he says when he talked to them, he'd say, well, what, what, what are y'all planning to do? And he says, we're believing God for 10,000 churches among this people group. And he'd go, well, that, that's great. I'd, I would love to see 10,000 churches among this people group, but like, what are y'all planning to do? Well, we're working to see 10,000 churches planted among this people group. It's like, well, great. That would, that would be super. I, w- I would love to see that too. It's like, so, so what, what is y'all's plan? Well, our plan is to see 10,000 churches planted among this people group. And he said he finally got kind of exasperated. He said, that's great. Like, what's your plan to get the first one? And he said they really didn't have one. If it, if it seems too good to be true 
And if the expectation seems unrealistic in what we know about the difficulty of mission work, it's hard, blistering hoe work, as one man described it. Well, then at least have your discernment radar kick up a level a little bit and think, well, what, what should we actually be doing? Well, that's where the encouragement comes in. What you should do is celebrate God-glorifying faithfulness as real success. I think a lot of Christians, when it comes to missions, they'll believe what I just said, but they kind of view, it's like, it's like if you ever went to field day when you were a kid, I don't know if they even do this anymore, our culture so hates anyone to not be a winner, but if, uh, I see this with my kids, but in my day, back when people were stronger, um, we would go to field day and you'd get like a blue ribbon if you were in first place, and I don't I only re- remember the colors, I think you got a red ribbon if you were in second place, and you got a green ribbon or something if you are in third place, and then everybody else got a white ribbon, all right? But you kind of knew it was worthless, you know? You got a white ribbon that says you showed up, but it didn't really mean much. I think in missions, people feel that way. When we talk about faithfulness, we'll say faithfulness is success. Like, yeah, I give this guy a white ribbon. Like, he was faithful. Now, that's not the way it is. Like, faithfulness really is success, and we should celebrate it. Now, somebody can persevere and be, you know, dumb in what they do. They may see no fruit because they're obnoxious and angular and argumentative. Well, help that person. But if someone is being faithful and they're not seeing fruit, but they're regularly declaring the gospel, that's success. I think we don't even really understand evangelism in missions sometimes. I think we think like evangelism is successful when somebody believes the gospel and responds. That's actually not the way the gospel the Bible pictures it. Like evangelism is successful when the mouths of unbelievers are silenced in their accusation against the justice and the goodness of God. And that happens every time the gospel is declared publicly. It happens whether or not anybody believes it or not. I had one of the most really painful conversations I ever had visiting a worker overseas was a, was a friend that I, some of the folks here know, who was laboring in Samarkand, Uzbekistan, and he'd been there for about six years and seen almost no fruit. I think two people had believed, which is wonderful, but in six years, I think that's all the fruit they had seen, and I was taking a walk with him one day. He's a very thoughtful guy, and he said, you know, I'm beginning to wonder, and I'm beginning to have to work to get my heart around, it's possible that God has sent me to this city so that on the last day, when God judges the people of Samarkand to hell, that his goodness and justice will be vindicated. Because God will say, not only should you have known that you're not God, but I actually sent someone to this city who declared the gospel to you. And so as sort of the old writers say, you stand twice condemned. He said, I understand there's no promise that that's not why God sent me to this city. And in God's, in God's wonderful kindness, you know, he, he did see fruit, and there were some churches gathered, and things did happen. But this faithful brother was trying to prepare to understand that may be what my faithful ministry is. 
And, and I think that brother would get a blue ribbon, not a white ribbon. He, he would really be a success. I think those of us who support and encourage missionaries need to understand that. Otherwise, we become part of the force that tempts them to cut corners in order to produce visible results when real results may be slow in coming. Well, number seven, and finally, is faithfulness to the word of God their passion or is it something else, even something good? In defending his ministry, Paul talked more about fidelity to the word than he did about his own gospel impact. So he said, again, as we read earlier, he said, we refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. It seemed like Paul was more concerned with preaching the gospel with integrity than with seeing a great number of people gathered at any cost. So my final and strange warning to you is beware of a passion for evangelism. That may seem very strange, I'll say it again. Beware of a passion for evangelism if it's not wedded to a passion for biblical faithfulness. A, a pastor friend of mine loves to say that one of the fastest ways to get to heresy is a passion for evangelism that isn't wed to a deep passion for biblical faithfulness. Because in that case, if, if you are passionate to see people respond at any cost, you're very likely to become one of the people who's willing to cut a corner here and like leave out Jesus's sonship over here and maybe not talk so much about repentance over here. So be passionate about evangelism but make sure that your passion is wedded to a passion for deep biblical faithfulness, for Christ's church and his bride. Have a settled confidence in God's sovereignty in missionary efforts. Look to the kind of confidence that Paul had. He knew his ministry was from God, and based on that, he didn't lose hope. You know, I, I think about Paul's defense, and I fear that many churches today and many mission agencies would fire the Apostle Paul. He just wasn't that impressive in his own lifetime. But we know that, that we have a responsibility to sin discerningly and partner discerningly and support discerningly and to do that in light of Scripture and that the fruit may be amazing a hundred years or in our case, 2,000 years after their ministry. So having done that, I want to encourage you to, to send and support and partner with, with trust and love and servant-like humility. And I pray that the mission of Christ will be a joy to all of you. Can I pray for us? Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you. We pray that you would encourage us to be passionate about your word, and passionate about the mission you described there. We pray that you would do that, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.